From the heart of the Oregon wine country, you're listening to season six of the Wine Crush podcast. Stories uncorked for wine enthusiasts around the world. Featuring winemakers from the Willamette Valley and beyond. From origin stories to terroir, here's your host, Heidi Moore. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wine Crush Podcast. Again, we are here in beautiful downtown McMinnville. We are season six, episode four of Stories of the Wine Industry. And we have two great guests. Actually, we've diverted off the path a little bit. We've brought some cider in today, which is super exciting. But we are going to start the day with Mr. Michael Mega from Nisa Vineyard in Dundee. And Michael, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Heidi. It's a pleasure to be here. I know we've been kind of chasing each other for a while. and Don't tell your husband. Nope, nope, I won't. That's a secret now that everybody knows other than him because he doesn't listen. So there there we, there we go. I even downloaded the podcast for him. He still hasn't listened, but that's okay. We're still married. We're still good. Anyhow, I spent an amazing afternoon with you and Monique up at the tasting room like a month or two ago, and we talked all about your story, which is my favorite part, of course. Um, Well, the wine, of course, but, you know, I love a really, really good story. So let's start about, you know, how you got into wine. And you have a romantic story in the middle of it that I thought was so interesting. And I've asked you not to leave that part out because I think it was my favorite part. So floor is yours, my friend. Well, romantic. Hmm. Okay. So it was in college, actually, in Santa Barbara, and I uh, fell in love with a girl from Paris. She was going to the Monterey School of International Studies, learning simultaneous translation. And the biggest effect that I think she had on me was through her father. We, Which is usually the scary part with somebody's dating a daughter as the father, but apparently he was a good influence. Oh, he was an amazing guy. He was what the French call a bon vivant. He was an art restorer of not only paintings and sculptures, but also castles and, you know, the murals in castles and in winery chateau in France. And so when she thought it was a serious enough venture to take me to Paris and meet them one Christmas... She introduced me to a different life that I never experienced before because in Santa Barbara, you know, I was drinking beer. I was, you know, an undergrad. And if I did drink wine, it would be California Cabernet. And I didn't really understand the depth of our choices in the wine world at that time, at that young age. But he, from his work in chateau and castles and whatnot and the restorations, was often given cases of old wine from the various places that he would restore. So he had a very deep wine cellar. And I remember going to his house on a visit during Christmas with her, and he introduced me to a whole, you know, array of different wines. And one day he asked me, you know, have you ever had Burgundy? And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, oh, Burgundy, Gallo, right, those big gallon jugs. And so I said, yeah, I've had Burgundy. And he goes, oh, really, which ones do you like? And I'm thinking, there's more than one. (laughs) (laughs) And so I then obviously became humble, and so he started pulling out these bottles of first-growth Burgundies that, you know, Dujac and Mayo Camazé, and I was just blown away. I did not realize that wine could taste so good, and he told me a little about it, and I realized that, oh, this is all Pinot Noir, and I think I probably had some, at that time, Sanford and Benedict Pinot Noir from Central Coast, California. And I thought it was okay, but way too expensive. I had no idea how much the Burgundy cost, but now I do. So after that experience, it was like an epiphany. I go, I cannot believe that something in a bottle can taste this sublime. And so I made a promise to myself that I would plant Pinot Noir and try and make the best Pinot Noir I possibly could. I had, as a little child, a boy growing up. My parents were poor. I lived in an apartment. And so I always grew seeds. I germinated seeds right now, you know, middle of March, and then planted them in a little garden that we had and loved to watch things grow. And so I knew that I had this love for being a farmer. And as a philosophy major, what better thing to do the opposite of living in the world of ideas and then getting your hands dirty after you're done, right? Oh, of course. So it doing the opposite seemed to make sense to me early on. And then finding the thing that I wanted to plant, that was a no-brainer. 
And so I spent the rest of my life trying to make the best Pinot Noir I possibly could. And I began looking actually uh, in Central Coast, but I thought it was too hot there, San Inez Valley. I wasn't smart enough to think, oh, a little closer to the ocean. Then I started, I tried the uh, William Selyam 1975 Rocchioli Vineyard. And I said, oh my God, Russian River Valley. So I started looking in Russian River Valley and was too dumb to think, oh, Sonoma Highlands, right? Coastal Sonoma Range, 2,000 foot elevation, much better for Pinot Noir than Russian River Valley. And I went through to Mendocino, tasted too much like pine needles. And in 87, I tasted the 85 vintage of Oregon Pinots with Sokol Blosser, Ponzi, Bethel Heights, et cetera. And I go, oh my God, that's Cote de Bonne. Well, of course, I started knowing what Cote de Bonne, Cote de Nuit was because every time Jean-Paul would come and visit us, he would bring foie gras, truffles, and burgundy and Armagnacs. I could never avail myself to that experience. So it was through him that I began appreciating what great Pinot was. And uh, then uh, I lucked into a property that had just been sold to Domaine Druon after a chance meeting at a bar, because I'd been coming to Willamette Valley, Portland area for a handful of years. I met this guy in a bar down by the riverfront in a jazz club. He started spouting off stuff about champagne and he seemed like a know-it-all and I was trying to ignore him, but he you know, engaged me in conversation. And it turned out that he was a shareholder of Shehalem. So through him, I met Harry Peterson Nedry and Harry was kind enough to help me chaperone me around looking at various sites. And so in order to educate myself, I went to the U.S. Geologic Survey Center in Menlo Park, California. This was before the internet. Okay. So can you imagine <laughs> I, that before I, the internet? I, it, it's so hard for so many people, especially, you know, the younger generation to realize there was no internet. I was still taking typing classes in high school because there was no computers or computers were new enough that they were expensive for school districts. Right, so yes, right. so I the, love this part of the story. So, so the only way you got to know about terrain and weather and elevations or topsoil or the basalt beneath it was to look on a map. And the U.S. Geologic Survey Center in Menlo Park, California had these huge maps that came out in these big drawers of everything the surveyors were able to know about the West Coast. It was the West Coast Center, okay? So I pulled out all these maps, topological maps and soil sample maps of the Willamette Valley, of the wines that I had tasted in the 85 vintage. And I was pouring over those, looking for an Eastern exposure, high elevation, because from what I understood from what Jean-Paul was telling me about the different Burgundian sites like Von Romanet, you know? You got to be higher elevation. You want to be a third way up a hill, typically, or two thirds away, not on the very top. But I had this vision in mind, and Harry helped me achieve that by one day finding out on a Friday afternoon that the people that sold Druon, the land that he's currently on, they had it about 160 acres. They ended up keeping their favorite 40 acres for their filberts and some wheat and oat. And so, Unfortunately, the husband got a stroke and couldn't operate the tractor anymore. So Harry overheard a conversation that they were going to sell those 40 acres and calls me up on a Friday, tells me about it. He gives me their phone number and I call them as a student. I'm still in school, right? Mrs. Uh, I'm not going to tell her name, but Mrs. she goes, Farmer. Mrs. Farmer asked me if I'm French. And I go, no, I'm not French. I'm American. And she goes, okay, you can have it. And I go, really? So I hop on a plane on Sunday and she shakes my hand and says, yeah, you can have it. We need to get rid of this. So that's how it started. And then every five years, I've been planting another five acres and now I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> so how many acres do you have planted now then? So right now it's 22 acres planted, although two have recently been ripped up because I started planting my original seven acres for the first planting. Because I was so poor, we, we put cuttings in the ground. There was no phylloxera found in Oregon at that time. This was in 1989. I got cuttings from other people and put them in the ground. 
And now they're being phylloxerated because they're on, you know, they're not on resistant rootstock. And so in 1991, phylloxera was found in the valley. So I started a, a mother block of all of resistant rootstock that Oregon State University had available and, and planted a mother block and then took my cuttings from that and then did field grafts, which is poor man's way of propagating the vineyard by putting the sticks of the resistant rootstock in the ground and then doing field grafting on top of the ones that took. I'm high elevation. And so it's difficult in some circumstances, since I don't irrigate, to get even the rootstock to stick. So it's kind of like natural selection. The 50% of the rootstock would take after a year, and then you put in another stick in the ground, and 50% of that would take, and then another stick in the ground to get the 50%, and then eventually you make your way to the you know, rootstock all taking. And once the rootstock has taken after about three years, then you can it, it can accept a field graft. And so it was a arduous process, right? It took a long time, but I had time since I started young instead of money. Yes. So many people- Young and poor. Young and poor, time is my commodity. So <laughs> old and rich, money is your commodity. <laughs> True. I mean, I don't think people realize how expensive it is to- plant a vineyard or even prep to plant a vineyard, let alone actually make wine from that vineyard and the time that goes into the maturing of the plants, the maturing of the wine that you've crushed and put in. I mean, there, it's just such a long timeline. It's not a quick process. So after the sixth leaf, I finally got a crop. And of course, who do I give it to? Harry, right? So Harry made the first vintage of Nisa in 1996. And after that, I then looked around in the Willamette Valley to find out who was making completely different types of Pinot. And so I found Ken Wright for a kind of American New World style of Pinot, and I found Bethel Heights for kind of an Old World style of Pinot, because I wanted to see how the winemaking from the same grapes was able to influence the flavor profile as the wines developed. And so it's really through the other winemakers that I was selling my grapes to that I became educated on my site. And so since that time, I've sold to, well, Panther Creek, Bergstrom, Antica Terra, Kelly Fox of Scott Paul, Mikey Etzel of the Evening Land, Lavinia, uh, Mark McKinley of Mark Ryan. Uh, so that's a big resume. A lot yeah, of big names. quite a few. I'm, yeah. I, I, I apologize to the ones that I'm forgetting. Tori Moore. I mean, my gosh, Jacques Tarde, one of yeah. the best French winemakers in the Valley. So through their eyes, through their technique, through their styles, helping them with crush, I was able to educate myself on the different techniques of making different styles of, of Pinot. And with having the top of the hill, but mainly an Eastern slope, I also had every aspect, you know, Southern aspect, Western, Eastern, Northern, et cetera. And so I became more aware of how the vineyard speaks to these winemakers because they asked me to farm it in a specific way. So since they're my clients, I'm supposed to do them the service of farming it the way they wish. So I, I learned the farming techniques from them. I learned you know, everything from them. I didn't go to school for it. I learned on my site. And one day I'll be able to figure out what Nisa produces. <laughs> <laughs> So when did it convert from being a like a grape supplier to these other great winemakers to Nisa in your own brand and doing sure. your own thing? Well, everybody except Antica Terra would vineyard designate Nisa. And the deal was in the contract that I'd be able to get two cases of any wine they produce. So in my cellar, I'm able to see the evolution of their techniques through the site, the location on the site that I've given them. Uh, so in a sense, I feel like it speaks through them on its own anyway, but I started, I, I felt confident enough to make wine on my own in 2000, starting in 2004. The 2004 vintage was my first one, and I, I made that at the old pie factory in McMinnville. Um, oh, that where, where the, North, blue, the where Blue North, Raven? Where Northwest Wine used to be. Oh, okay, there okay. we go. And then ended up moving and doing Custom Crush in 2009 to Tory Moore where I became good friends with uh, Jacques Tardet and, and John Tomaselli there. And uh, now crushed my first vintage at Nisa itself in 2022. So look, it's taken me 20, uh, 33 <laughs> years to yeah. be a winemaker on yeah. my own. Are you making all the wine yourself? Yeah. That's exciting. Congratulations. Well, I don't recommend long... it for anybody unless you start at 16. <laughs> <laughs> 
that's a long journey from start to finish. I mean, really, when you look at the whole journey from learning about wine, being exposed to wine outside of Cab Franc and Mad Dog 2020, whatever we drink in college, to French wines, to topography, studying, and blah, 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 all the way through— that's been a lot of years and a lot of history and a lot of experiences, and it's pretty cool to see it kind of come full circle. Well, one day it'll come to fruition, but I remember there was this little picture and a saying in the winery at Bethel Heights that Terry Castile probably put up, and it said, the greatest thing a man can do is plant a tree under which he'll never sit. And that's what a vineyard is. Interesting. I don't think I've ever heard that, but it's, yeah. I'll, I'll die before it's profound. people figure it out. Yeah, it's profound. Well... I think we should talk about some wine now. We've been drinking wine. So Monique had sent me home with some bottles when we were up talking originally. And I looked at the years on them. I'm like, you sent me home with an 07. And a, what was this? This was a 15. She sent me home with a 16 and then a Chardonnay. I'm like, is this your current releases? She's like, she's like, yeah, he holds them for a couple of years before he wants to release them. And I'm interested to hear your vision and ideology and thought process behind that. Okay. Well, that's because Pinot Noir is one of the few grapes that after sitting in the bottle for at least six to seven years, it can start releasing its non-fruit characteristics, the secondary characteristics of the terroir, the tertiary characteristics of the barrel or the person who's actually making it in the winemaking style. And that's the beauty of Pinot Noir. That's why I fell in in love with Pinot Noir, because it takes Cabernet Sauvignon about 25 years to start giving those secondaries out, whereas Pinot Noir is much quicker. And so it's the most expressive grape that I've experienced that channels the energy of the vintage, of the weather, of Mother Nature through it. So distinctly different vintage after vintage. So if you tasted the 05 next to the 6 and next to the 7, you would be amazed that, oh my God, this comes from the same location on the vineyard with the same winemaking technique. And yet look how different these wines are, how the tension of 07 from a cold year compares to the voluptuous tannins of six in a warmer year and how they meld together almost in a kind of intercourse in 05 as a Goldilocks year. And yet all of those three years are so different. And the thing that blows me away about Nisa is, I mean, I'm still drinking 98, 99, 96. On my daughter's 21st birthday, I I had three bottles of Harry's wine from 96. I opened one of them for her and I was able to get her to sit down for about five minutes and taste it. And she goes, wow, that's still good. How is it possible that Pinot Noir can hold together so long, like, or Nisa's site, maybe high elevation, maybe dry farming, maybe very tight spacing, three by six. One plant produces one bottle. So it's like the thing that I'm trying to learn about Nisa is where does all that tension come from? And that's why I sit on it because I'm making, I started making like 500 cases first. The land supports about 5,000 cases. So it's not big, right? Not big production. But I wanted to show people what those secondaries and tertiaries were. And that's why I hold them back for about six to seven years before I release them. But that's also why I try and make sure they taste like a five or a seven Mm -hmm. or a six to show them what happens in the bottle with even more time and how they're still elegant and balanced. If a wine isn't balanced when it's young, it's not going to be balanced when it's older. It's not going to soften. It's not going to wake up. It has to be balanced young. And so making the wine is essentially standing back and letting Mother Nature's force speak through the vintage of those grapes at that site. And there's something magical about Nisa, which is why I named it that. It's the ancient mythological place where the Greek god of wine, Dion of Nisa, Dionysius, was raised by nymphs who were making ambrosia for the gods. And man wasn't supposed to drink ambrosia, but Dionysius brought the making of wine to humans. And that came from the Valley of Nisa. I was shocked that nobody else took the name of where the Greek god of wine was raised by naked nymphs frolicking in the vineyards and making ambrosia. I was 
just going to ask you where that name came from and kind of the reference on the label. And you pretty much just spilled it all out for me. So that was great. Thank you. And it's surprising. I mean, I know, you know, people love to pull names from different, I don't know, cultural things, history things, whatever. So I'm surprised nobody has grabbed that yet. Me too. So I sell grapes to Domaine Nicolaget and one of their friends in Paris, who I guess is enamored with their version of Nisa, stopped by, uh, saw a wine shop in Paris called Nisa, took a picture of it and sent it to us. And it was like, oh, cool. Somebody else is in tune, at least, to what it means, right? Yeah, that's awesome. I, yeah, I, I had no idea. And I was kind of reading through your website today, trying to kind of freshen myself up and make sure that I didn't forget important details and stuff. And I was just getting ready to ask you that question. So I love it that you beat me to the punch. Nice work. Okay, let's talk about, you do more than just Pinot. Correct. Yes, you do Chardonnay. Is there anything else? Mm -hmm. We make a tawny port, which is very difficult to make. The difference between a ruby and a tawny port is a tawny has oxidation that occurs through extended barrel age, elevage, where you have about 12 inches of headspace on the barrel that the port is resting in. And after about seven years of slow oxidation, the port goes from ruby to tawny. So ruby tends to be very fruit forward, you know, dark garnet red. And tawny with that extended elevage ends up having more hazelnut characteristics, more characteristics of a lingering kind of almost doughy quality. And so that finish really starts coming out and in spades when you have the ruby go to tawny. But it takes time. Okay, so we do a tawny port. We also do a, a rosé, and the rosé Jacques Tardy at, at Tory Moore was always laughing at me. He goes, "Michael, that's not rosé," but I kind of stole the technique from Maggie Harrison of Antica Terra, who does an extended cold soak on the skins for about four days or so, four to five days, in order to get more heft and more color and then presses out her grapes and then ferments. So it's a very darker style rosé that can actually age. It's not salmon color. It's a unique expression. Most people go, whoa, this is rosé? and But it still has very floral characteristics. We also do a sparkling, a Blanc de Noir, but uh, now with my Chardonnay coming on board more and after planting more, I can probably do Chardonnay-based sparkling. But I also extend it on the lees. And so we do it for a minimum of five years on the lees. We're now disgorging the 2017. We'll have three different Pinot offerings, an estate, uh, a reserve, and another that we call the Pantera, which is something that we just started this last year. Uh, so there's not much more I can do. I could plant um, <laughs> a different a varietal. Yeah, I that's could, a handful as you got. I could plant a, a different varietal, and so I'm noodling with Cabernet Franc. I've seen and heard more and more about Cab Franc the last year or so. In the so, North Willamette Valley, yeah. I think it might be able to be okay, but we'll see. Yeah, it's it's exciting to see what everybody's kind of tinkering with yeah. and kind of what the future is kind of holding as far as... The other thing that we tinkered with was in a Botrytis-affected Riesling, like a Trockenbaren Auschlesa. And were you able to taste that when you were no, busy? No, uh uh. Oh, next That's time you come. That's right up my alley, though. I okay. Like oh, my God. It's so good. So I'm grafting on the old mother block of rootstock. I'm grafting Riesling in a little bowl that I can hopefully botrytisize. I've, uh, I've had one other Riesling like that, and it was amazing. I mean, it just had all these characteristics and flavors, and it was like, it kind of blew my mind because I'd never tried anything like that before. And so I'm, yeah, super intrigued. So I'll have to come back. I know Please the, do, Heidi. I know the number, so I will definitely come back. Can't wait to see it. Yes. Well, I want to talk more about Chardonnay because it is kind of making a comeback. It seemed like it kind of was popular, kind of went through a big lull, and then all of a sudden it is kind of back and hot again. So let's talk about Chardonnay a little bit because we get a lot of talk about Pinot, which, of course, is kind of the crown star. But Chardonnay seems to be like, you know, the sister that's up and coming. I agree. In the very beginning in production of Chardonnay in Oregon, it was essentially the uh, heritage clones that were planted, Draper and Wente. And at that time, there was a problem with it. This was in the 70s and early 80s because the weather patterns didn't allow it to ripen fully. 
And also production of these heritage clones was sometimes spotty because of chicks and hens, which is small berries and big berries. The big berries being the hens, the little ones being the chicks. And <laughs> so people started pulling that up and planting instead the new Dijon clones that were online coming from Dijon that had about two weeks early catch-up and ripening and had a different flavor profile. And I saw this all unfold over about uh, 15, 20 years, and I began to wonder, well, if I'm going to put Chardonnay on the property, I knew exactly where I was going to put it, on my southwest corner, the hottest corner, that which clone should I go for? And the the favorite that I had was really Bethel Heights Wente clone. Well, why, you may ask, was that the favorite? Why was that the favorite? <laughs> <laughs> I may ask. It was my favorite because the Wente clone has just a luscious finish, whereas the uh, Dijon clones tend to have very forward fruit characteristics like cotton candy, pineapple, kind of lovely tropical fruit forward characteristics with less of a finish. And Jean-Paul had turned me on to Chardonnay too. And it was Polini Monrochet with uh, various producers, Lafon in particular, floated my boat. And so I knew that the Wente clone was more similar to the Polinis that I was experiencing through his eyes than the Dijon clone. Well, maybe it was also, you know, where they were grown, right? I mean, let's face it, I think Burgundy is still the king of Chardonnay and the king of Pinot Noir. Oregon's never going to be like that. Maybe not, uh, but I don't think so. So I planted Wente. And Monique shared a bottle with you, right? Was that the 2019? I'm not 100% sure. Pretty sure and that's I've what been, we're currently releasing. hoarding it, so I haven't drank it yet. Oh, okay. I was going to ask yeah. you, so what did you think? Yeah, I haven't drank it so yet. So what I suggest you do is put it in a brown paper bag with one of your favorite other kind of you know hipster shards uh, that probably have Dijon clone, and then see the difference and see if I'm right. Maybe we should have an all taste test up at the house later. Okay. <laughs> Party made. Yes. <laughs> I'm always interested and I you hear so much about like the Pinot clones. You know, 777, A28, Pomard, you know, Bill, blah, blah, blah. But you don't hear a lot about the Chardonnay clones. And, you know, I guess because I hadn't heard them like, you know, over and over again, I hadn't really registered that there was really more than one. Right. And so with Oregon's Chardonnay coming back online and being really getting hot and people really paying attention, it's interesting hearing the differences in the different clones. Because, I mean, Chardonnay can be all over the board. It can be super fruit forward, very like green apple, tropical, I mean, like really punchy, I guess. But then I've had a Chardonnay like up at Tory Moore that, you know, she was explaining it to me and she's like, it kind of has a Werther's caramel finish to it. And I'm like, Chardonnay doesn't do that. And so I took a drink and I'm like, oh, yes, yes, it does. And it, you know, so it's, it's so interesting, the difference in what a white wine can do. Mm -hmm. Especially if you fermented in stainless versus wood. I'm still learning a lot about fermentation techniques with Chardonnay, but it has more capability of being touched by the winemaker's hand than Pinot. Interesting. Well, I'm excited that it's coming back to such a strong um, point in the wine industry. So am I. Yes. Well, with all this interesting facts and the fact that, you know, where the vineyard and where the tasting room is, is so incredibly beautiful, I think you should probably tell people where it's at and how to find you. Oh, so people want to find us, do yes, they? Yes, they want to come drink wine with you. <laughs> okay, so the Dundee Hills are in the North Willamette Valley, and we're in Oregon. And nice clarification. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's the state that's nestled between California and Washington, for those who are listening. And to get to Nisa, you simply leave Portland and go on Highway 99 West and pass through Newburgh and then Dundee. And once you pass the bypass, you will see a blue sign that says Nisa Vineyard. And then you just go up that hill a mile and a quarter, and you will be at the place where the naked nymphs frolic with the baby Dionysus. That was creative. Nice. I don't think I've had anybody actually give full driving directions from state to state. <laughs> and through the, I'm like, you didn't even say if we were butted up against the Pacific Ocean. So, you know, 
You could have added that in there, too, and you would have really narrowed us down to where in the world we are. If you hit the two lanes heading towards McMinnville, you've just passed the driveway up to Nisa. So you need to to flip a Yui and head back up the hill, and it's definitely worth your time doing that. What about socials? Do we know where, is it Nisa Vineyard on Instagram and Facebook? Yes, indeed. Okay. I didn't know if I needed to call Monique and just clarify that or pull my phone up and make sure we had the right thing. So is it appointment only or is the tasting room pretty open to floaters? Okay, so technically speaking, we're appointment only, but all of those who are listening to this podcast, you can tell them that Michael sent you and you can just drive in. Ooh, I love that. I think you're the first one that's pulled that rabbit out of the hat. So rush, rush up the hill, drink one. This is so great. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day, driving from Portland and joining us on our little show. My pleasure, Heidi. Next up, we are going to bring Emily in. She is with 19 Acre Cider, and she's going to tell us all about cider. And she's brought a lot of it. So we're going we're gonna to get busy drinking. have refilled our glasses. We have now moved on to cider. We've started with a Honeycrisp, if I am correct, right? That is correct. Yep. So we have Emily with a 19 Acre Cider Company with us. But I have to tell the story about how we met you, because I met you a week ago, literally. Shay and I were up at the Northwest Cider Symposium in Tacoma, and I had been complaining because I had my the other guest that was supposed to be here back out last minute. And you were our first stop at our first tasting at industry tasting that night and we got to chatting and I'm like, so do you want to be on a podcast? And you're like, I don't know what day it is. I'm like, Tuesday, like literally in a week. And you're like, yeah, yeah, I think I can do that. And so, and here you are. And you brought all kinds of great things for us to drink and try. And I've really gotten interested and excited about cider. And it's because of the Northwest Cider Association, because I really didn't understand cider. I just thought it was apple juice with a kick. And it is so incredibly creative. And so we're really excited to have more and more cider as part of the show because it really is wine with a different fruit, kind of. Yep. And so here you are. And thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you for having us. We're really excited to be here and share our story and share the journey of our cider story with you and everyone who's listening because cider is a very exciting industry to be a part of. It's really up and coming and it's really starting to kind of grab some traction and starting to blow up. I noticed at the symposium, it was like double the size that it was last year and just a lot of energy out there. So let's uh, let's start with the story of 19 Acres and who they are, where they're at, why they're doing cider, and then let's get into the cider itself. And I want to talk a little bit more, not geek stuff with it, but I think people need to understand it a little bit better and why it's not just your standard apple juice that you get from treetop that maybe you sat out in the sun too long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 19 Acres, the history starts with Oregon Heritage Farm. It's a family-owned and operated business, and it's owned by the McLennan family. We're located just right off of Highway 210. That's where all of our apple orchards are. We started with just 15 acres of apple trees, and now we have over 400 acres and currently have over 200 acres of apple orchards. That is so many trees. It is, yes. And so much maintenance. Yes. And and I mean, vines are maintenance too with the pruning and trimming and whatever, but I have a apple tree and I hate trimming it every year. (laughs) I have one apple tree at my home as well. Yes. (laughs) I was trying to talk my neighbor into doing it and I was going to trade him some wine. (laughs) It never got done. So (laughs) so it's still hairy. So we're a really large apple producer for the Portland metro area. And all of our apples go through our processing plant and they get their picture taken. If they're not pretty enough to go to market, then they either become non-alcoholic cider under our Oregon Heritage name, or they come over to 19 Acres and become hard apple cider. Initially, what we would do is we would sell our apple juice to other hard cideries within the area. 
And we're also just churning bad apples into the soil because we didn't have anything to do with them. So we realized we were missing out on a lost profit margin. And that's where we took our 40 years of apple growing knowledge and started to use it also to making hard cider. So how long has the family owned the farm then? I mean, you say it's a heritage apple farm, but does that mean that you've owned it for 20 years? 40 years. 40 years. So, which is a long time. And apples are, I guess in my mind, are more known to be like in like the Yakima Valley, Wenatchee Valley, even up the gorge and stuff. And you don't see the big acreage of apples really out in the valley, Willamette Valley, as you do maybe some of the other crops. And so I guess why did they choose apples instead of, you know, just yanking them out and doing something maybe a little bit easier? That's a good question, isn't it? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) There is a passion for apples or something there. There is a passion for apples. I do know that it was started by Phil, the grandfather of the family. And he came from Texas and his family grew prickly pears down there. And then they moved out of that. When he moved up to Oregon, he started growing apples. Well, there's always Johnny Appleseed. That was like one of my favorite stories as a kid. So maybe there's like a romanticism with just being like the new day Johnny Appleseed. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's great. I mean, I'm such a huge fan of farming and I have so much, I don't know, just love for the creative process of what farming is, whether it's cows or sheep or apples or vines or whatever. I love seeing what people's passion is drawn to. Apparently, apples was his, and it's really turned into really this amazing, cool product. Well, and it's also really neat because all of the family lives on portions of the property. So, and they have cows and they have chickens, and everyone gets farm fresh eggs for breakfast, and um, they take the cows to auction. And so it is a full on operational farm. Not just apples, but we, you know, have other animals. That, a little bit of everything. Yeah. A true working farm. It is a yeah. true working anytime farm. You, anytime you throw a chicken on a farm, you can call it a true working farm. Because, <laughs> you know, there's more than one commodity, right? So, okay, let's shift a little bit more to the cider because I do think it's just so interesting. And, I mean, sitting in front of me are, I don't know, five different things. And I think when people think of cider, they think of apples and apples only and I mean, there's been other cideries that have brought kind of hard cider a little bit more to the forefront in from flavors, different kind of takes on it. But I don't think people move past in their heads how serious a cider can actually be. I think it's still a little bit foo-foo in their mind. It's not maybe as cool or as hard as like drinking an IPA or a really nice glass of Pinot. But there is so much artistry, creativity, and love and passion thrown into these products that I really think the world needs to know a little bit more about. Yeah. So what we do, we try to make a cider that's approachable for everybody. As you were saying, you know, there are different levels and types of cider and we don't have overly sweet cider. We want you to be able to taste the cider. As you're drinking that Honeycrisp cider right now, it tastes like a fresh cut piece of apple. And that's because it's, we're proud of it. Um, it goes straight from our orchards to the processing plant, to the press, to our fermentation tanks. So the environmental impact of our cidery is fairly low, too, because if you look at other cideries, they're trucking juice from long ways away, where ours is all just within a five-mile, five to six-mile radius from the tree to the end product. Which I think is really great. And I think that is, you know, something to kind of think about because I guess if you talk about carbon footprints and talk about farm to fork or vine to glass or whatever, you don't hear about a lot of cideries that are literally going from tree to bottle on the same piece of property. Yeah, we like to say blossom to bottle. Oh, no, see, I've not heard that. I I, I like it. Yeah. So let's talk about kind of the different apples that are used for cider because you know, it just like with the wine world, it's not just Honeycrisp or Granny Smith or Gravenstein. I mean, there's so many apples. I, again, learned so much last week. I didn't know there was black apples, which kind of was a little bit mind-blowing too. So let's talk a little bit um, about the different apples that you use, and then we can talk about maybe some of the other fruits as well. So for our cider, it's primarily dessert fruit. So we use Honeycrisp, Granny Smith, Johnny Gold's, So for the Honeycrisp that we're drinking right now, it's technically a single varietal cider. We use over 80% Honeycrisp apple. 
We will use for like a blend of other apples from the orchard when we're back sweetening. But this is what you can consider a single varietal cider. So, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but like with wine, I mean, are we looking at like a balance between like tannins and acid and sugar and stuff with a cider just to make sure that it's balanced like what you do with a wine? Yeah. I mean, so we don't sulfite. We don't add any fake flavors. We control the temperature of fermentation and moderate that and stop fermentation when it's peaked out. So we just try to make a very well-balanced, approachable cider that's drinkable for everybody. We get so many, I notice because I work on the sales side, a lot of people tell me they don't like cider. And I say, well, you haven't tried our cider yet. So how do you know you don't like it? So I'll get them to try it. And then they give me that awe face where they realize they finally just found a cider that they like. And I think that's a big thing is, I mean, it's kind of why we do the podcast with the wine because so many people have been kind of bought into the myths and the things with wine that it's just, it's too serious, it's too expensive, it's too this, it's too that. And so they just shun it and just push it out. And I think the same thing has happened with cider, which is really unfortunate. I am totally guilty of that because I'm just like, I'll just take an IPA. I know what that tastes like. I like it. Cider's, you know, doesn't have enough kick, which is untrue because last year we got sauced at the symposium on accident. We being Shay and I, not we by myself. So she's just as guilty. But it has the same kind of kick as like a, a beer does. And even um, I think when you get, you know, up in the Pomos and things like that, I mean, it has a major kick to it. Yeah, it definitely does. And there are so many different styles of cider. You know, we are more of a modern cidery. There are more traditional cideries out there, which are typically you find in the nice 750 bottles, just as you would a bottle of wine. We want to be that cider that people just go for. We don't want it to be overly fruited. We want you to know that you're still drinking a hard apple cider. When we get to our Marionberry, you'll see what I'm talking about. We try to keep our fruits. When we do the addition of fruit, we keep it light because we are proud of our apples that we grow, and we want that to shine through. We don't want to cover it up. No, and I think that's a big deal. And speaking of Marionberry, I'm going to open it because my glass is empty, and so is Michael's. Who else has an empty glass? <laughs> I guess I'm drinking slow because I guess, I'm I guess talking. You're, you're talking, so there you go. And I'm going to totally you know, blow out all the fizz there by doing a, a tall pour. Do you want more than that? Apparently, he wants more than that. There you go. There you go. Yeah, Marionberry hard cider. And the fun thing as you're looking at that can, you can look at the ingredients. It's one of my favorite pieces of our can is the ingredient list. It's Northwest Apples. And for the Marionberry, it's Northwest Apples and Marionberries. That can't get much more simple than that. It's simple. Yeah. 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 No, I, I love that. And I mean, I know sitting here we have like a... Pineapple mango? Pineapple passion fruit. Dang it. I'm gonna get, I am <laughs> gonna get that eventually. I have mango on the brain. Pineapple passion fruit and then uh something hibiscus. Strawberry hibiscus. See, that all looks great. And they're in growlers and yum. Yeah, I, I brought I brought two of our draft only options just so we can get a little excited for summer. And these are some of our summer flavors. Oh, that is so good. Our strawberry hibiscus will be coming to cans soon. We have our can order placed and we're all really excited for that release to add another can line to our core. So what are some of the myths with cider that we can like totally debunk right now? It's too sweet. That's not the case. At least not with what we're drinking today. Correct. Yep. It tastes like jam. Definitely not. Correct. I think you could also mix this with like some, if you really wanted to kick it up, you could totally throw some spirits in here and make this into a really kick-ass cocktail. Yeah, you can make great cocktails. There's uh, definitely cider cocktails out there. You can make margaritas if you have a like a lime, lemon cider. You can turn it into a margarita. You can, in the winter, do a spiced cider. I'm sure we've all had a little cider with some whiskey or rum in the winter. Yeah. Um, that's a great, Maybe great some winter cinnamon cocktail. schnapps would yep. might be good in there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's lots of um, different ways to, to embrace cider and drink it. You what, don't have to drink it standalone. Yeah. So what are some of the other myths? I'm so, I always love to hear what you hear in the tasting room that people 
think of something. I mean, I hear it all the time in the beer industry. I hear it all the time in the wine industry. I love being able to go, nope, that's BS. Nope, that's not the way it goes. I think that I think the big thing for me is um, the fact that it's not serious. I think I hear that all the time, that it's just like people are bored and so therefore they squish apples and throw it in a bottle. I think it's so much more sophisticated than that. And I think it really it's, is. It really is. And after going to the symposium last year and this year and drinking cold brew cider, which, okay, that sounds awful, but it was a mind-blowing. Your guys' Marionberry, the Imperials, the infused stuff that we've tasted. I mean, even what's sitting here on the table, I mean, I, there's just, it's not simple. No, it's not simple. It's not just squished apples. And it's not just fermented for girls. Out. It is not just for girls. There's a lot of thought process. Just like in the wine, we operate under a winery license. We are fermented fruit. There's a lot. Cleanliness is so important in all fermentation. If you don't have a clean fermentation facility, you will get bacteria and you will get bad product. That is just the facts. Then there's a lot of thought process put into what ingredients we do use for when we're making fruited ciders and our recipes for creating those ciders. We come together as a team and sit down and we talk about the ciders that we want to bring out to the market. You know, I'm out in the market. I hear what people are asking for. And I bring that knowledge back to my team and we all sit down and talk together and try and help look at what we can do and what we can create for the market for what they're asking for. Awesome. Well, let's talk about some of the different things that you offer because we've talked about a little bit what's on the table, but you just said you have 12 taps at the tap room. Yeah. Which, and I'm sure there's stuff in cans and there's other stuff that you guys are cooking up and creating for the the warm months ahead. Yeah, we currently um, have three can options. So So we offer an imperial cider because that's a really big hit on the market right now. Everybody's looking for that bang for their buck. What is that? I don't even know what that really means. Imperial cider? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I get that a lot. Imperial cider is just like in comparison to an IPA or an imperial IPA, it's a higher ABV. That's where it gets its name. Got it. So our imperial is a blend of apples from our orchard. With this one, we do add the addition of cane sugar to bring the ABV up to 8% because those yeasts need more sugar to eat to bring the alcohol content up. Sure. Our Imperial, our Marionberry, and our Honeycrisp are all of our core lineup that are offered year-round in cans. And then we always have a rotating draft availability. Our Strawberry Hibiscus will soon become part of our year-round offering, both draft and can. For summer, we have our Pineapple Passion Fruit, which I brought with us today because it is a warm, beautiful spring day and everybody's itching to get ready for summer. So I thought that would be a good one. True that. We have Blood Orange Sage that is also available in draft. that sounds amazing. It is delicious. And we have, uh, for winter, we have a Yuletide that we serve warm or cold in the winter. It's a spiced cider with, you know, your traditional cinnamon and cardamom and nutmeg. We also... Right now, we have a very limited release at the tap room. It's called a yuzu plum, which is a Japanese uh, citrus. It tastes really good. It has almost kind of like a tutti frutiness to it, but it's dry and it's semi dry and it's just bright and yummy to drink. We can't keep the kegs on tap at the tasting room. So here's a question because I love food pairing with wine. And actually, I love food pairing with. Beer, which isn't maybe near as prolific as wine, but somebody's going to kick me for saying that. But how often do you do food pairings with cider? All the time. And yeah, it, and, is it, and is it easy? I'm not a professional chef, but I know what I like. I love charcuterie boards and cheeses. And so um, I think there's a different, just like for wine, there's a different cheese for every wine. And there's a different meat to go with that cheese. And so for like... The Marionberry, I think that is great with like a with like a Humboldt fog from Cypress Grove and a little bit of prosciutto to go with that on a nice little crostini. 
You're making me hungry. <laughs> well, good. We have a little, we have some bites to enjoy. We, we do. They're more than bites, but they are, it's a, like a full meal deal out there waiting for us. But yeah, there's a lot of really awesome cider pairing dinners. Um, and that's something that we would like to bring to our tasting room eventually. We haven't quite got there yet, but um, a lot of different cideries do cider pairing dinners. So you know, you can have a cider with your appetizer meal and your entree and then your dessert. I will be waiting for that because I think that would just be really fun. I've done a few different wine pairing dinners, which are always amazing, but I've not done a cider. So when you decide to roll that out, please make sure and invite us. We will. So you don't yeah. have to pay for us. We'll pay. But, <laughs> but we want we want to come and check it out and try it all. Um, okay. Let's tell everybody where to find you. We've talked about everything I think that we need to talk about. People just need to come out and see you guys try this, understand the complexity of this, the creativity behind it, and just how prolific cider can be. This is probably my favorite part is our tasting room. It's so beautiful. It's on a really lovely piece of property. We have the nation's second largest miniature train track Ooh. all throughout our property. Uh, we have a wooden trestle bridge. There's indoor-outdoor seating. The view is spectacular. The indoor feel is lovely. Oh, you can find us <laughs> <laughs> just uh, west of uh, Beaverton. So if you're coming from Portland, you follow 210 out. We're neighbors to Ponzi Winery. If you're listening to this and familiar with Ponzi Winery, you can follow the blue signs and you will see our blue sign right under theirs and you will pass us before you get to them. But we're on Seifert Road right in the Shoals-Sherwood neighborhood. Perfect. And what about socials? We are on Instagram, Facebook, and you can find us at 19acres.com. See, that was just so quick and concise and perfect. So make sure and follow both of our guests, see what they're doing, what they're up to, and then definitely go out and see them. So thank you, Emily, for joining us. Thank you for this, having us. And thanks for bringing us so much great stuff to drink. We have two down, three to go. So <laughs> we'll, do, we'll, do, we'll do that with our snacks. And thank you, everybody, for joining us, supporting the podcast. Do not forget to go out and subscribe, like, and leave us a review. And please share us with all your friends. Thank you again to Emily and Michael with 19 Acres Cider Company and Nisa Vineyard. And huge shout out and props, as always, to Daniel with South of Autumn Productions, uh, Dustin with Biscuit and Pickles Catering, and everybody else who helps behind the scenes. Thank you. Everybody go out and have a great day. And don't forget to drink your wine and cider. <laughs> <laughs>